You are listening to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, a show about cybersecurity and the people that defend the internet. My name's Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, the one and only Matt Bromley is going to talk about lateral movement in the first installment of the Adversary Toolbox. The Adversary Toolbox will be a recurring segment that is going to explain some of the various TTPs used by bad actors. Following that, I'm going to be talking with several cybersecurity startup founders about the lessons they've learned along the way and things they wish they knew when starting out. If you have any questions or feedback, please reach out to us at defenders at limacharlie.io. We want to grow and evolve this podcast into something great, and with your help, I think we can do it. Hi everyone, this is Matt from Lima Charlie, and welcome to the Adversary Toolbox. In this segment, we'll spend a few minutes chatting about a particular adversary tool or tactic. Our goal is to bring light to the different TTPs that adversaries use, so that as defenders, we can be on the lookout and aware of exactly how these tools can be used or abused within our environments. In today's episode, our very first segment in this series, we're going to briefly discuss PS Exec a remote execution tool that is part of the Sys Internals Toolkit from Microsoft. That's right, our first tool is created and published by Microsoft. PS Exec was originally designed many years ago as a replacement for Telnet that allowed for process execution on remote systems, and the tool is touted as having full interactivity for console applications. Furthermore, PS Exec is listed as being most powerful for launching interactive command prompts on remote systems and remote-enabling tools like ipconfig that do not otherwise have the ability to show information about remote systems. Yeah, I grabbed that line directly from Microsoft, but originally this tool was designed as a tool to help system administrators complete their jobs. After all, hopping around from system to system is not a foreign activity. That's something that we can easily see system administrators doing. Unfortunately, the idea of hopping around from system to system and performing recon, pulling back system information, looking at other details is also an adversarial craft as well. So unfortunately, this tool quickly became a favorite tool of adversaries as the features that align with the tool also align with what adversaries like to do on systems as well. Now, looking at the MITRE attack matrix, PS exec can be used for a wide range of features such as account creation, uh, the creation and execution of remote services, but perhaps the most relevant feature of today's segment is lateral movement. PS Exec allows for the transfer and execution of files over a network share using legitimate credentials. Again, aligning with exactly something that adversaries like to do. We've seen PS Exec used by a wide range of threat actors for many years now, ranging from APT groups all the way to financially motivated threat actors, the most notable being Fin5, who had a really big presence during the credit card fraud breaches way back in the day. Furthermore, we'll see some groups use PS Exec out of the box, while others will use some earlier versions based on open source sysinternals code. That's another reason that threat actors like this tool. There is an open source repository from many years ago, but Microsoft purchased sysinternals and the tool is maintained and published by Mark Rasinovich over at Microsoft, and the tools are often signed, and therefore they don't always trigger AV or EDR alerts. In fact, as a dual-use tool, it is not uncommon to see PS Exec used by system administrators. I'm sure you can imagine this adds to the complexity of detection. As we see in multiple environments, 
dual use tools will often throw false, pos false positive alerts or will confuse investigators. However, that does not mean that detecting PS exec is impossible. First off, security teams, I highly recommend establishing whether PS exec is even used legitimately in your environment. If not, a blanket detection and response rule can be really quick to find suspicious activity. If PS exec is used legitimately, then we want to take a look at some of the intricate parts of how the tool is executed. What types of parameters are in the command line? Uh, what user accounts are used? What systems are being connected to and from? We would expect system administrators to have a jump box, for example, and we might want to look for PS exec activity outside of those particular systems or using non-standard user accounts or service accounts. There's another really cool detection trick to find PS exec in your environment. In fact, any sysinternals tool. There's a registry key that gets created on every system upon first execution of the tool on that system to indicate that the EULA has been accepted for running that particular tool. Now, threat actors will modify their command line parameters to automatically accept the EULA, but the registry key still gets created and it has served as an excellent threat hunting tool in the past. So despite threat actors loving it, PS exec is not impossible to detect. And with Lima Charlie, it can actually be used to easily detect its usage within the environment with some really simple detection and response rule crafting. In our next episode, I'm going to continue looking at some lateral movement tools, notably PA exec, which changes one letter from PS exec, but focuses on a different set of functionality and achieves lateral movement in a similar, but also easily detectable way. I hope to see you there. What a great segment. Thank you for putting that together, Matt Bromley. I'm very much looking forward to the next installment of the Adversary Toolbox. Next up, we're going to be speaking with three successful cybersecurity founders about things they have learned and things they wish they had known when starting out. Um, hi, I'm Corey White. I'm CEO and founder of Savitar, and we are a subscription-based outsourced cybersecurity uh, company. So previously, you could not actually go and get cybersecurity implemented in your company. Now you can simply subscribe. We would do gap analysis, and it will implement the missing gaps and maintain that in a subscription for a fixed fee. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me on the show today. I'm excited to chat with everyone here. Um, so I am the CEO and founder of Key Caliber. Key Caliber is a risk-informed asset management product. So with our solution, instead of spending months conducting interviews and questionnaires, understand your environment and what's most important and what the risks are, we, in an automated way, provide a full asset inventory and for each asset, a, an impact score, a risk score, the connections and the security tools that are covering it. So you have this visibility into your, your own environment and can make informed decisions. Um, I'm Maxime Lamad-Brassard, um, CEO co-founder for Lima Charlie. And what we do is uh, security infrastructure. So it's kind of taking an AWS-like approach in terms of access to the technology and uh, and then the types of products are cybersecurity primitives. Uh, so essentially, we do tooling for cybersecurity professionals. Uh, it's kind of the 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 exact opposite end of the spectrum from I think from Corey what what you guys do, which is kind of going to make an interesting discussion. Roselle, I'm going to start with you. 
How did you come to the realization that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Was it something that was always there or was it identifying a given opportunity that drove you to action? I caught the entrepreneurial bug very early in my career. Um, And at the time, I was actually working at a startup in San Francisco during the end of the initial dot-com boom (laughs) and the bust. And so I I was in that environment. Um, which I found very exciting. Although I was at a company that had six rounds of layoffs during the, the bust. Um, I made it through all of them, but still I got to see the, the full roller coaster. But that's, that's where I started to develop this interest in entrepreneurship. And I actually had my, my first startup was a, a web portal for folks who wanted to find workout partners and soccer teams and the like. So nothing related to cybersecurity. <laughs> but that, that gave me the bug. And then many years later, once I was in the cybersecurity industry, uh, that bug resurfaced uh, okay. because I saw all these problems and all these technology gaps that weren't being filled. And that's what prompted me to, to switch gears and say, you know, this is a gap that needs to be filled and I'm going to fill it. Oh, that's very cool. I, I love people's uh, Genesis stories. And yeah, I, I think people who are younger and didn't realize what a big crash that was at 2000, like what a time to be sort of starting out in your career. That's uh, interesting. Corey, did you have a, a realization early on or was it something that happened later? Uh, interesting enough, um, I've always had the the startup bug. I remember when I was in the 90s, I was working full time, but had like a side hustle um, called Enterprise Internet Consulting, where I was helping build websites and get companies started on the Internet. Right. Um, And I realized I'm not a web developer, so um, I I stopped doing that. But um, I've always been an entrepreneur. I love, love building things. So it's interesting. Um, I did this uh, online test called Spark Type, and the Spark Type gives you these ten kind of characteristics of yourself, and um, there are two primary. One is I'm a maker. I love building new things, and I, I'm a maven, and I love learning new things. So that's just always been me. I learn and I build. And working for a regular standard company and a regular job, you can't build and learn fast enough. So I just get bored. So yeah. that's why I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah, my my very first company was making uh, WordPress websites, so <laughs> I feel like we've got something in common. Max, um, yeah, I mean, for for me, I think I, I didn't really. It wasn't so much the the entrepreneurial bug as the uh, the n plus one kind of bug. Um, so I think everywhere I was, you know, working in different companies or the government, kind of always looking to go, you know, one step past the edge of where, where I was, um, and and I think it only kind of crystallized around, okay, well, now the only step that's left is kind of to go and start something because, you know, there, there's there's no other company, you know, that's going to allow me to do this. So, uh, yeah, it, it's just kind of a natural transition um, to go and start something. So I'll just throw this one out for everybody. And, you know, now that you've kind of gotten to where you're at in your career and you've got these companies and they're growing. If you could go back to those very early days and give yourself a piece of advice, is is there one thing you wish you could tell yourself? So tough. Uh, I, I'm, I'm of two minds. Um, one mind is you learn from everything. So yeah. everything is an experience. Um, the other thing is I wish I could slap myself around a little bit and 
and just focus. I knew about growth is really hard to do. And but you get excited and you're like, oh, let's grow fast, let's grow fast. And the people have told me, pace it and take your time. And you know, I had to learn the hard way on some of those things. So it's it's I, I, you learn from both, right? So yeah, yeah. There's a risk to growing too fast, uh, but there's also the upside if it works, right? So I think right now in the economy, we're seeing that it probably cautious is a, is a better approach at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, this is my second cybersecurity startup. And so with this one, it was way easier because I had all the lessons learned from the the previous one. And uh, one of the biggest lessons learned was know who you're going to be working with very well before you start working with them. Um, And with my last one, I didn't have that lesson learned. And, uh, and so now this time around, I have a phenomenal team, phenomenal yeah. team. And it's all because I, I learned from the first one. So I, going into this first one, I told myself, look, get this right this time. And <laughs> so that's made a world of difference. Yeah. Where were yeah. you three years ago? I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I felt that one. <laughs> yeah. I, so many people who are in entrepreneurship know that feeling. Yeah. And it's it's kind of remarkable when I've talked yeah. to folks and they're like, oh, yes, I had the same experience or, oh, I've heard about that experience. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like it's, it's similar a little bit for me, which is um, really, you know, the, I, I would say really think about uh the type of company that you want to build in and and what you want that to look in the future. I think, uh, you know, they're, they're, this is really the first company I started, but I was kind of part of some early companies before. Um, and that's sort of the big lesson I learned from before, which was, you know, if you're getting, if you're starting to build a company because you're passionate about something that's good, but it's worth kind of looking at the dots where it's going, right? Like if you're, if you're building a consulting company, then there's just some characteristics that come along with that. And you got to be in it for those characteristics. And so, uh, you know, versus starting a product, um, there's a very different set of characteristics, right, that that you're going to be working with. And I think uh, early in my career, I just had the passion. And I didn't really think about connecting the dots of where it was going to be. And so I, you know, would end up in a spot where it was good, but I wasn't building it, wasn't building kind of towards a company that was thinking it was going to be. But I think ultimately the other, I think, interesting flip to that is uh, I'm glad I didn't know the the timing and the effort uh, starting it, right? To, to what Corey said, uh, you know, pacing yourself and things take longer than you think and things end up being harder than you think. And if I had known, you know, with full knowledge before when I started, I think I would have, you know, I would have, I might've been discouraged at first. Whereas if you take it day to day and you build it over time, then you're good. For someone out there that's thinking about jumping into the ring, they have this idea, they think it's a good one and they think they can execute on it. Are there ways that you suggest that they should try and validate it? Or is there ways that they can validate it before they go all in? Have so many conversations with potential customers. Just talk to them all day, every day, because you'll find that your view of the world is not everyone else's view of the world. 
and you want to change what you build so that it matches a plurality of views. And and that's that's the the biggest challenge in the early days is making sure that you're building something that that people value and value enough to spend money on. And and I'd add to that as well that get customers early on that are actually, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot, but that are willing to pay for the little thing that you're starting to build because everybody's got opinions. Uh, but until somebody's actually willing to put some money down, they're just opinions. They're not things somebody's actually willing to pay for. Yeah, 100%. It, for me, I did both um, because what I thought this company would be at the very beginning is it exactly what it is today? But you have to learn to pivot. You listen to what those early customers, those early, the early feedback, and you keep pivoting and pivoting and pivoting. Then eventually you will have something amazing. But even when you think it's amazing, you still keep pivoting because I'm still pivoting today. And so you have to have that mindset that, and, and be fluid in what you're building because ultimately that's what's going to make you successful. And for me, once I got my first you know, a few customers and got close to a million in, in sales, then I realized, okay, this is it. Then yeah. I went out to get funding. Yeah. So yeah, talking to customers, making sure somebody pays for it uh, or is willing to pay for it. Are there other things that founders should be working on in those early days? Is building relationships with VCs or brand and marketing, like are those things they should be spending effort on? Is there anything else? I'd say building the team just in those core folks that, that you need in the really early days. So if it's a technology company, either you're doing the initial building or you're hiring someone to do it. And right. you're going to have to work very closely with them. Um, I find that it, talking to investors, it's, it's a necessity. It's also a massive time sink. <laughs> and so in, in the really early days, it, it could be interesting to get their feedback as well, because some of them, they are talking to a bunch of CISOs and they have some good insights. So from that perspective, it, it could be useful. And also you get a feel for whether you like their personalities and want to, right. to work with them when you are at the point of raising. But I think in the, the really early days, it's, it's all about team and product and that, that has to come first. Yeah, I would say as it relates to investors, Make sure when you listen to them, they may tell you to build what they want you to build, what they think that they can invest in, which will help them, but it may not necessarily be what you want. Maybe you want to build something that every VC wants to invest in, and that's your goal, or maybe you want to build something that you actually are passionate about. I think you've got to know the difference between those two, because an investor will lead you down a certain path uh, that may not be what, what you want. Uh, the other thing that I, I think I did a pretty decent job of is I had a really large advisory board. Um, I had a lot of people around me, um, either the advisors or a CXO counsel, advising me on what's right and what's wrong and just guiding me to getting to the right solution. And those are things you don't have to pay anybody for. You can offer them stock or whatever, and then they will come in and just advise. I'm piggyback on that. That when you get advice or you get feedback from customers or from VCs, you could get sent off in 12 different directions, depending on, on the conversations. So at, sometimes you need to wait the feedback and, and 
figure out right, who's who really has their their finger on the pulse with it. Or sometimes it's it's a, a melding together of feedback from a couple of different places. Um, but I've found it's been super interesting in my conversations because I'll talk to two equally amazing cybersecurity individuals who will have completely opposing views on the same topic. And then it becomes a big challenge to figure out, all right, do I listen to this one or that one? Do I somehow sort of fuse the two or do I just call it a wash and then continue other conversations? And and I, I keep going on that topic and say, like, I, I think for me, it's been very valuable to speak with a lot of, of potential investors of VCs um, to get that that breadth is one kind of side to really kind of see the whole spectrum of how people think. Uh, but I think the, the, the two kind of other advantages, one is it gets you used to talking about what you do um, at a high level and to figure out what resonates with people because you know the business super, super well, but others don't. And so getting used to learning, oh, when I talk about what I do in this certain way, no, you know, nobody cares. Uh, but but when I talk about this, I, there's a lot more interest. And I think the the, the last one is um, I found that a lot of VCs have really interesting advisor network. And speaking with those advisors also allows you to, um, you know, to to spread the word about what you're doing and find the ones that do hook onto what you're saying and that, you know, that align with you. And those, uh, you know, those people that align with what you're doing have been super helpful for us and in, in just, you know, helping us reach more people. Yeah, one last cap to that, because it, it was a passionate topic. I know we keep coming back to it, but um, if, if I listened to what the VCs and even some of the VC advisors, I would have not have solved the customer problem. Because what the customer actually wanted isn't what a VC will probably invest in. Okay, so I had to solve the customer problem and then find VCs that are really investing in solving the problem. So it's, it's, it's crazy, but I want you to, the audience to think about it from both sides. Yeah, well, because sometimes you run into VCs who have a view of the world that, that they've formulated based on something, and they're pretty set in that view of the world. Mm-hmm. And so if you come in with something that doesn't fit that view of the world, they're going to still look at it from that lens. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's why you got to definitely weigh what you want to retain when you get feedback and, and what you don't. Oh, for sure. Get, getting a, I, I, I was going to say a thick skin, but that's not, that's not the right like mentality, but, but learning to accept somebody else vision of the world that you fundamentally might disagree with and just, you know, take it as is and, and, you know, try to extract some value from that without, you know, just tunnel, like having tunnel vision is, yeah. is very good. <laughs> yeah. You could, and you could learn from, even when someone has a completely opposing view, I mean, we spoke with, with one person who had been in the role of a security leader um, who, who felt machine learning can't, can't be 100% accurate. And our, our product relies heavily on, on machine learning. And, and I wasn't going to dispute that. I'm not going to say it's 100% accurate. 
said, you're, you're right, but you know, we're, we're replacing a, a task that had been done by humans before. Would mm-hmm. you consider humans to be 100%? And he said, yes. <laughs> and so at that point, yeah, okay. that, that, you know, that, I knew where he stood on the topic and it was just a very fundamentally different view. Yeah. Um, but it's still an interesting conversation because it, it really brought to the fore the, the fact that, yes, everyone here values technology and advancements and thinks that that, that can solve many problems, but that's, that's not everyone's view. Growing the team and hiring beyond that initial core of people on the founding team can be difficult and introduces a lot of risk to companies at the early stages. Uh, any advice you would give to people who are facing this daunting task for the first time, you know, bringing on those first true employees that that are sort of disconnected from the founding team a little bit? So, like I said, this is a lesson learned from my last one. And so this time around, all my core folks have been either people that I've known for years or came very highly recommended by someone I've known for years. So I've been very fortunate that my whole leadership team, no one came in off the street where they were an unknown variable. I already knew them or they had been very heavily vouched for. Yeah, I'd say the network effect is is the best thing people can do early on, but eventually you just kind of run out, (laughs) run out of network. So. Yeah, once you run out of the network, um, you you really have a, a few things I do, and I don't get it right either. Believe me, I wish I was some magic formula, but um, I, I do definitely try to know the person and know them through a network and, and do some kind of references. But you know, there are a few things I ask. I actually, when I'm interviewing, I don't care about whatever I'm hiring them for. Hopefully, whoever my team member, whatever that subject matter is, they've done that part. By the time they get to me, I want to know who this person actually is. Right. And and so a few things I, I always ask, why are you crazy enough to try to join a startup? OK, <laughs> and I just want to know what their opinions are. Why? Why would they want to join this? Because there's no guarantees. There's a lot of risk. You don't know what's going to happen. Right. So I want to understand where their heads at. Um, other things that if they're open to it, we, we do. Um, I share my personality profiles with them and then ask them if they were willing to share theirs or, or take it. And we talk about it just to get to know each other and, and they'll know what I'm good at, some of my faults. And I love to hear kind of what, what their thing is because my my approach to hiring and have building an organization is, is pretty simple. I want people doing what they would do if it wasn't work, right? I love being a founder. I love being a startup person. So it's not really work. I, I work my ass off, but it's not really work. So I want people doing the exact same thing uh, because if they have to force it, it will show, especially in a startup. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. often a lot more work than a regular job. So uh, finding people who are passionate, I think is pretty important. Those are great answers. <laughs> if, uh, you know, if I was to add something, uh, I think a thing I've always liked to filter pretty heavily on is people that will have a, different opinion but that are able to um to discuss the opinion and kind of do things in a very constructive way to go in a direction um because early on in in a startup there's 50 different directions that you could go and uh and so having people that 
really understand, you know, what they're doing and uh, can analyze the situation is really good. Um, and people that can also recognize sort of the longer goal and then to have those discussions across the team to then align in the right direction. Um, people that are, uh, you know, very, very categorical, uh, uh, you know, has been in my past has been, it's been tricky sometimes because, uh, you know, doing a startup is trying to align, trying to optimize for 150 different variables. Uh, you know, nothing is going to be perfect in, in all dimensions, right? Yeah. So a couple of my thoughts, um, if it's a, a key position, I like to do a try before you buy kind of situation where the first three months will just be on a contract basis. So both sides get to see if it's a good fit and get to see how well everyone works together before there's any major commitment. Mm -hmm. um, and then in, in terms of some of the questions that I ask, I always like to ask, what do you do when you don't know something? Because especially in a startup, there are going to be times where you're just, you're running into something that's completely new. And I want to understand how people react to that. I mean, first, th their reaction to that question in general could be very telling. If they're like, what do you mean? I don't know something. Um, but, but, uh -oh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but more often, it's just because I want to get an understanding of, okay, are they going to just be flexible and figure out a way to solve for X and get it done? Because that's that's a skill that that's really critical when you have an early stage startup. I I got about, I love that that point. Uh, just a quick point, real quick. When I started, I'm totally dating myself. The internet had just come out, so me as a kid, like you didn't have Google, right? So if somebody says, "Well, I don't know how I figure that out," and you're like, "You can look it up." It just now it's just you can figure anything out if they can't figure something out. That is a non-starter for me. You know, they just got to walk through the process. Well, I'll look it up. I'll try it. And it's, it's steps now. This is, The world is uh, all available to you now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So there's no excuse. If you right. don't know something, you can know it in 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a good question. Thank you. So given there's thousands and thousands of security vendors, and that's not an exaggeration at all. There's literally thousands. Uh, how do you go about trying to differentiate yourself and, and stand out from the noise as, as a young startup that maybe doesn't have, you know, a million dollar a month advertising budget? I can go on on this subject for a long time. But <laughs> I'll, I'll be brief then because I want to hear the, the answers. Um, my opinion on it is for me, and the thing about a startup, the startup has to be angle around you, your personality. Um, if you are a founder, then the whole concept of blending in, you know, shouldn't be something you're you're doing, right? Because you you have to differentiate yourself and it has to be around what you're passionate about. So for me, um, I'm a bit of a, a, a hippie. So um, you'll see like our, in our marketing, you'll see stuff like Peace, Love, Savitar. When you, like at uh, South by Southwest, I spoke on love versus fear. We need a cybersecurity revolution. So those types of titles and, and those those are specifically designed to stand out from the rest of the 
technical, hey, hear about your MDR solution from us, etc. No, that's like ridiculous. Why? That's what everybody's talking about. So we don't use those same terms. And so we've uh, in, intentionally looked out to make a, a brand that is differentiated. Um, and then on top of that, also have purpose behind it to really, really change the world and make our, our customers more secure. So be a purpose-driven organization. So that's how we're differentiating, but I'd love to hear more ways to do it. No, I, I, like, I like that concept a lot. Um, I mean, so first off, the fact that the market is so crowded, that's an issue because <laughs> that it, it does a disservice to everybody and particularly the buyers mm-hmm. because there's just so much noise that it's hard for them to decipher what's legit from what's not. I feel that a good portion of that is just because of all the investor dollars that have gone into cybersecurity. So you end up having the, the, the normal process of natural selection doesn't happen in this industry the way that it should, because there are so many investors that just want to have a cybersecurity portfolio company. And so companies that would have normally fallen by the wayside still get propped up and then the market gets more and more crowded. And so, so for us, the way that we look at it is you, know, you have a finite number of product categories. And granted, these product categories sort of shift over time and, and they grow. And Gartner has a new acronym for a new product category every, every quarter. Um, but the, the way we look at it is as an early startup, you can't create a new product category. Even if your technology is that unique, where really there should be a product category for it. And so it, then it becomes a, a challenge to figure out, okay, what other category do I fit in, but I'm a plus too. And I have this unique twist and this unique capability that no one else within the, the product category has. And so, so that's how, how we look at it. Right now, we talk about asset management and asset management in and of itself is, yeah, you've got your inventory and maybe a little bit of info about it, but we're adding this whole risk component to it, which is a completely different take on it because you're not just saying, well, here's everything, but now you can mm-hmm. focus on what's the highest priority because it's greatest impact or greatest risk. Um, so, so we look at it from the standpoint of try to fit in, but still stand out. Um, which is it's a challenge. It's, it's a big challenge when you're a, a very early stage startup and you, you can't shout as loudly as the other companies that are out there. I mean, even if you're on the RSA floor, the Black Hat floor, you've got this tiny little booth compared to all these massive booths. And so, so the differentiation needs to, to be more subtle. Um, it can't just be, look, we've got the biggest budget to spend on marketing. That, that's so yeah. interesting. Real quick, I just want to chime into that because it's, that is, I, I'm taking the opposite approach, not saying one is right or wrong, but a few things that I think are different, I think it'd be good for our audience to hear. Um, what has changed is, is social media um, because there's usually not as much of a charge for social media. You don't have to spend as much. And especially during the pandemic, you can still kind of, reach people because they're in front of their, their computers. The, the other piece to it is I battled with that, that exact thing. Should I be a, a plus one to everything else or should I create a new category? 
and I could not get away from creating a new category, okay? I knew that that required getting the word out more, um, and that's what our, that's why our approach is the way it's been. But ultimately, that's what we needed for our business was to create a new category. What it gave me also was the power to say that I think everybody else, for lack of, sorry, anybody else listening, but everybody else is doing it wrong. If I go out and say I'm MDR or XDR or whatever else, I, we're the opposite of that. We actually will solve the root cause of the problem so you don't get alerts. So it's just a different mindset. I think both work, but that's how we've atta- approached the crowded market. Yeah, no, kudos to you for, for making making that happen. I mean, I've seen with with many companies that when they they want to try to create their own product category when it's really early, there's just mm-hmm. so much time and money and effort that goes into educating the market that they just can't sustain it when they're really, really small. Um, yeah. But I mean, if you pulled it off, that good on you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's. <laughs> I, I feel like we're 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 a little bit kind of closer to to what Corey's saying. I always think back around the, uh, you know, the saying that it's it's better to uh, you know to find a few people that really love what you do than to get a lot of people that are just like yeah it's all right. Uh, and so I, I think what we've tried to do is to kind of you know define sort of the the sandbox of what we're playing in, right? And then to say that within this, we have a very strong vision within that sandbox. So I don't have a very strong vision around like threat intelligence because that is not part of you know where we're going. However, if we're talking about security infrastructure and, uh, uh, and um, transparency in the security posture, then we do have a really strong vision in that space And and so I think finding that sandbox, defining that vision that not everybody is going to adhere to that vision, but finding that a lot of people strongly do, um, I think that's what really helped us get a lot of people uh, spreading the word for us uh, without us having to put, you know, a one to one like dollar of marketing to to like dollar of outcome kind of thing. Um, But it's. To 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 Roselle's point, it's very it's very difficult, uh, and finding the balance, uh, especially if you're talking with you know, some customers, are super super uh, you know Gartner sensitive, uh, and and that makes those discussions really difficult. But it's part of the challenge. What do you look for in a VC partner? Uh, I'll, I'll start. I'll be quick. Uh, <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, what I what I would like to see is is a you want somebody that's on the same page uh, as you, um, and and sees the same vision, but also can be objective and and still redirect you and point you in the right direction when you you may be going astray. Um, I, I just I think it's hard because the the founder. And sometimes the the VC partner, they they have different goals, but you have to align with that ahead of time. Because if if you don't want an exit in three to five years, then you know you need to ask, well, okay, how long can you invest for? You have to ask that and better understand that because some of you are like, hey, all right, three to five years, we need to pay back our LPs. You know that yeah. may be a thing, 
or it may not. So you really, really got to get to know their motives of, of investing in you and what they want out of the business. And you really, really have to be upfront with that VC partner and, and say, oh, this is a eight to 10 year run or something. Then, OK, it may not match. I'm just throwing out scenarios, but those are things you have to really, really think about. Um, and it is it is like speed dating. I think you know probably everybody on this call, like uh, both of my rounds, I went through 40 to 50 different conversations before you find the right one. And that's mm-hmm. just the way it works. I totally agree. And I think it links back to a bunch of the discussions we've been having in terms of you know, we're talking now in terms of, uh, you know, hey, do you, you, how do you define what you do? Do you fit in, you know, in a specific, you know, Gartner kind of term or not? And, and finding investors that, uh, that will kind of understand your approach and that are, you know, that, that align with it. They're, they're, they're good with taking that direction. How you get, you know, to that end, end goal will vary. And, and I think there's a lot of, of input, you know, from, from investors and advisors. But uh, I totally agree with Corey's point, making sure that fundamentally, uh, you know, you're aligned to go to the same place and and not feeling I, I would add not feeling bad about meeting people that aren't in that space. Right. It's totally fine uh, from from both perspectives. Uh, it's just important, I think, to filter fairly easy, uh, f- fairly early on on like, hey, you know, you're a great VC, but we're not going to the same spot. Let, you know, let's chat again in five years and who knows. Yeah. I mean, I would basically bucket VCs into three categories. You have the ones that are neutral where they're just, they're going to provide funding and that's about it. You have the ones that are a, a negative because they come in, they've got their view of the world. They're trying to impose it and they just muck up everything. And, and then you have the ones that are, are a real value add, that they're coming in and they're bringing their expertise, they're bringing their network, they're trying to help out in any way that they can. And so it's really a matter of trying to figure out which bucket of the three um, that, that they're going to fall in. And sometimes the neutral ones are completely fine. And I mean, obviously you want to have as many of the the value add, the positive ones as possible. But neutral is fine too. It's just being able to distinguish the ones that are going to be a net negative. And, and sometimes you can tell that in the personalities right away and you can set, tell that in just the language they're using of, of how, how they want to be involved with their portfolio companies. Um, and, and sometimes it's tough to tell because they could be saying, oh, yeah, we want to be really involved and we have this network and this and that. And so you have to sort of distinguish, well, does being involved mean that they're, they're going to be just overbearing and, and causing more problems than they fix? Or are they really going to be helping with moving the company forward? One last piece. Um, is I would make sure that you um, interview you know, do background checks on your VCs, like ask them, Hey, do you have references? Can I talk to some of your portfolio companies? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously they're going to give you the good ones that, that like them, but at the same time, do your background research because it's, it, it may be telling that may be what tells you the difference between whether that's what category one, two, three, and I love that myself, um, which, which category they actually are. And the other part about it, which just being true to the audience here, 
sometimes you just got to take the money. I hate to say that because <laughs> at the end of the day, you, yeah. you talk to 50 of them, one offer you money. You're like, okay, yeah. <laughs> we just got to roll. And so that does happen, which sucks. But yeah. Yeah. Survival's the, the last stop. <laughs> <laughs> Should someone look to work in the industry for a given amount of time before venturing out on their own? If so, what's the best environment, large corporate teams, MSSPs, startups? Uh, anybody have an opinion on that? Well, I spent about a decade on the operational side of cybersecurity before becoming an, an entrepreneur. So, um, yeah, I thought that was valuable. That was immensely mm-hmm. valuable because I had felt all the pain points. And I had seen where there were problems that weren't getting fixed. And I would talk to my peers and say, hey, do you have a solution for this? And they said, no, it would be really helpful if we had one. Um, so I found that that having that, that industry expertise before starting my first startup was utterly crucial. Um, I, I don't think I would have had the same insights if I was coming in from from a a different industry. Now, with that said, I'm sure that there are tangential industries where you can apply much of the same learnings to the the industry. Um, But in general, I think getting an understanding of what it feels like to be in the shoes of the customer that you're selling to makes a world of difference. And and I would add to that, there's the industry. I think the other dimensions also uh, very useful to have to have been in different size companies or organizations in that industry uh, because you know if you go and work for an IBM the concerns that you have in the day to day you know working maybe as an individual contributor are going to be vastly different than if you're in a small startup so i think kind of having done the whole spectrum it, it gives you a good feel uh, for uh, for how different people feel, and, and and having been in a smaller side of things, I think has a side benefit of uh, help helping you get an appreciation for you know the the beginning of what it's going to be to do a startup, right? To to start a company um, because you don't have all of that support. So being used to you know talking to uh, you know to people about various topics about you know maybe marketing, even if you're in a really small company. It gives you a little bit that that you know that uh, that taste for the types of things you're going to have to worry about. Yeah, I I'll, I'll give both answers again. Um, yeah, my answer is always both, I guess. But um, <laughs> I think when you're a first time founder and you haven't watched it happen before, you will fall on your face, and you and then you just got to learn quickly <laughs> and keep on learning because it's just stuff you won't know. Um, so I, I think that's one side of it. But for me, um, I, I am a first time founder, but at the same time, I had a front row seat as an executive of building a unicorn. Right. And so I was in all the board meetings for six and a half years and watching you know, a company go up to um, you know unicorn status. And so and I got to build from zero all the way up my own P&L. So I don't really consider it necessary. your normal first time. Because I came into this knowing a lot of things. Uh, you're still going to learn some new stuff. But I would just encourage anybody that's new that wants to get into that. If you have an entrepreneur, entrepreneur mindset, go and do it. You know, yeah. Just know that you're going to learn a lot. It's just it's a mindset. 
And if you've had a front row seat, I, tr- I really recommend uh, doing it after a front row seat because it does get a little bit easier. You don't have everything solved, but it does get a little easier. Those are great answers. And, and I would just even add to that too, that took me a while to figure out is that don't be afraid to ask for help. Uh, you know, if you're trying to start a company and you really admire somebody who's who's working in the same space or done something that you admire, most of the time people, if they receive a genuine ask from somebody, I'm always happy to help. And I think think most of you guys would agree with that. 100%. Absolutely. This was a really great conversation and I think fully useful information for anybody thinking about starting a cybersecurity company. I want to thank everybody here. Uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Lots of fun. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. I just want to take a second and say thank you to everyone for the feedback and support we've been getting. We're super grateful and appreciate you listening in and engaging with us. If you found value from this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you went to Apple Podcasts and left a quick review or rating. It would mean so much to the team who put this podcast together. And make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you're listening from. And again, thank you very much, and we'll see you in the next episode.